Good morning, Lakeside. Uh, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. This is week number six of being separated and yet worshiping together. And I say again, this is still the day that the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. You're at the right place at the right time to hear the gospel proclaimed, and the gospel is good and true. I want to invite you now to be called to worship with the Apostles' Creed. And it begins like this, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Good morning, church. The prophet Isaiah says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you exhort us to consider Jesus, the Apostle and the High Priest of our faith. Indeed, we confess this great mystery of godliness. He has come in the flesh, vindicated in the Spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, where we can draw near and find grace to help in time of need. And so we draw near this morning. Give us relief from our sins, cleansing in our confessions, strength in our obedience, hope in our cry for change, joy in our knowledge that we are your children. Through your abiding spirit, renew our love for your Son, 
doing the works that reflect that love. Let us not take for granted your mercy, saying in our hearts, I will sin, believing that grace will increase. But rather let us say, he died for all, so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose on our behalf. Revive our hearts to this grace. Make your word clear and true that it would enlighten us. Help us to live not by the bread of this life alone, but by the bread that satisfies eternally. Our prayer for your kingdom and will is our cry to be like Jesus, reflecting his obedience, love, and sacrifice. And so we pray in the name of the author and the perfecter of our faith, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Church, the psalmist says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, uh, good morning. It is, uh, it's Saturday morning for me. It's Sunday morning for you. We record these a little bit early. And I just want to tell you a, a few things to begin with. One is, is just how uh, thankful we are as a church to everyone who continues to, to, to give towards God's work of the ministry here. Uh, we were, we're blown away by the faithfulness of the people at Lakeside. Thank you so much for that. The other thing is, is just how many times I speak to people and they tell me about how they interact with the sermons as a family. They, people will tell me, you know, we get it up and we have a cord and we put it on the TV and we sit down in the living room and we all watch it together. And I think that's beautiful. We, we try to do the same thing at, at our house. And uh, uh, so, listen, I, I just want to uh, encourage you not to get out of the habit of meeting together, even if it is uh, a different way we're having to meet. Uh, here's my question for you this morning. Have you ever heard of something called the book of signs. It's a name given uh, to a portion of scripture in the Bible, and it's found in the gospel of John. And the book of, of signs actually refers to John 1.19 all the way through the end of chapter 12, so a really large section. Uh, so in many ways, the book of signs is kind of like, it's kind of like the first half of the gospel of John. And, and the second half of the gospel of John is called the book of glory. And, and the second half of the book of glory is, is about the glory of Jesus. And it's seen through his death and his resurrection and his ascension. However, what I want to focus on for the next several weeks to come is this first part of the book of John, the book of signs. Uh, the section of John uh, is called the book of signs because there are seven miracles performed by, by Jesus, seven supernatural miracles that point to the divinity of Jesus. And what do we historically call these seven miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of John? Well, we call them signs. 
Now, what do you suppose is the purpose of Jesus' signs? What, what's, what's the purpose of them? Well, what's the purpose of any sign, really? We usually say that, that a sign points to something, right? So if, if you think of maybe road signs, and you might see a stop sign, that, and, and if you see a stop sign, it points to your need to stop. Let's take a look at a few signs to see if we can tell what they're pointing to. For instance, this first sign says, uh, says slow children playing. Uh, it points to the fact that, that kids are possibly in the street playing, and therefore you need to be driving slowly. Uh, we've all seen this sign, uh, especially in my neighborhood lately. It seems like they're, the kids are out of school and they're everywhere. And, uh, it's, but our next sign, is, it's actually a little bit more specific. Apparently, apparently, the kids who were in this area who were also playing outside happen to be deaf. And so you need to be aware of your speed and the fact that they won't be able to hear. That's probably a good thing for drivers to know. But this sign, it points to something very specific. It points to the fact that there are deaf children playing in the road. Our next sign is it's a little bit more confusing. It's, it's similar to the first two, but it seems... The words might mean something else. This one is a little tricky. Instead of, of asking drivers to, to drive slow uh, because kids are playing nearby, this sign is informing drivers that there are actually slow kids playing nearby, uh, that the kids themselves are playing very slowly. They look a lot less interested in sports in the street and a little bit more interested in ice cream. But it's definitely pointing towards large, slow kids. Another sign points to, to drivers to the fact that this is a place where older pedestrians tend to cross, which is really good information for drivers. And it's all fine and dandy until you, play, you pay close enough attention to see that they're walking on Cemetery Road. And then that just seems to be in bad taste and offensive, doesn't it? I mean, uh, let's look at one last sign. What is this pointing us to? It's pointing us to the fact that apparently you have just entered into an area where drunk people may be crawling across the street. Now, I'm not exactly sure where this sign is from. Maybe it's from Bourbon Street. Hopefully, it would not be found in the front yard of any of your homes. If so, you may be handling this quarantine thing in a very unhealthy way. Although, listen, we're done with the road signs. I want to I bring us back. So here's my question. Since we are reading together uh, the part of the Gospel of John called the Book of Signs, and we recognize that it refers to seven miracles of Jesus, what do the signs and miracles of Jesus point to? Right? Isn't that a fair question? If signs point us to something, what do the signs of Jesus here, these miracles, point us to in the Gospel of John? Well, it's not really complicated at face value. The fact that Jesus can do these supernatural and these miraculous things that no one else has ever been able to do, that in itself points us to the fact that, that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what the book of science points us to. The miracles of Jesus, they, they point to his divinity. And while all the signs point primarily to Jesus' divinity, some of the signs point to other things also. And as we read through the book of science together, we'll stop and we'll ask, what is, this, what is the specific point, or what is every specific sign pointing to? Uh, well, are you ready to get started reading? I, I know you are. Let's jump right into the text. We're going to be reading together today from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. 
But before we do, uh, let's pray together. Father, as, as we come uh, to your good word, uh, we pray that your spirit would open our eyes, quicken our hearts to be able to receive your truth here. Uh, God, we, we want to subject our lives to the, to the word of God that we come before today. We pray this in Jesus' name and all the church said, amen. Uh, hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in John chapter 2 in the first verse. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill up the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants knew uh, who had drawn the, uh, the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, "Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Church, the grass withers." And the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, one of the things I really love about my job is being able to be part of weddings. Uh, I, I, I enjoy every bit of it. I really like doing premarital counseling. It's much more fun and much prettier than most post-marriage counseling. The couples, for the most part, are pretty joyful, and they're pretty optimistic, and they're looking forward to the most important celebration of their lives, especially for women, right? I mean, if you think about it. Now, I know it's not universal, but in a large part, women really think a lot about what their wedding day will be like. From the time, from the time that they're young, brides have this idea of what the wedding's going to be like. And, and they've seen weddings idealized in movies and stories. And by the time it's their turn to be married, they have in their mind a very clear image of what their wedding should look like. The brides know what color the dresses should be. She has a good idea what the flowers should look like and where the bridemaids should stand and, and how everyone should walk and, and what color the, the groom's tuck should be. Once again, I, really, I know I'm generalizing but I've observed my fair share of weddings. And I've observed that men, for the most part, especially those men with any common sense, just stay out of the way. Grooms recognize that, listen, you're just lucky to be invited. As a man, listen, the only part of my wedding that I ever, ever dreamed about was that one moment when, when I would be standing with the preacher in the front of the church and, and the, the back doors of the church would open 
and there I would see my, my bride and she would be wearing white and she would be veiled. And I had, I had thought about that moment as I prepared to marry Cammie. And, and I had been at, I'd been at friends' weddings before when that happened. And honestly, I would, I would be sitting out in, in, the, in the audience and I would watch my friend as those doors opened and I would see his face and see how emotionally he get. And I would just have to look away because I would just get overwhelmed. And I'm not crying, you're crying. It was one of those kind of moments. Uh, it's an overwhelming moment for a groom to see your bride dressed in white and veiled. The bottom line is weddings are a big deal. They're moments filled with expectations, nerves, and anticipation. And it's very safe to assume that the same holds true for this little wedding in Cana of Galilee. In the Hebrew world, as in many others, uh, they considered the wedding celebration to be the most exciting event in a person's life. So typically, the Hebrew wedding began with a great feast. Uh, that's a great way to start a wedding. And, and after the feast, after that, that was through, the bride and the groom, they were taken on a kind of late night torchlit parade through the city. Friends would, would hold a canopy over their heads and, and, and the bride and groom would, would walk under it all the way and they would take, they'd take the route that would go through the busiest places in town so that everybody could see them and they would be celebrated and paraded. And once they finally reached their home, instead of a, a honeymoon, they would host what, what was about a, an open house. They, they, they would, surrounded by friends and family, they were treated like royalty. They would even wear crowns and, and they would wear wedding gowns. And for a poor Canaanite, this would be a once-in-a-lifetime celebration. It was something you'd have dreamed about your, your entire life and, and you would want it to be perfect. In our story, in our text, Jesus is at such a wedding. Our story takes place, it's, it's at that feast of the wedding at the beginning. And it it's really happens in this small farming community of Cana. And Cana was about nine miles north of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And, and if you think about it, Cana was really little, but Nazareth was, was really small also. Uh, estimates have the population of Nazareth at about 500 and the population of Canaan was only just a few dozen, not, not very big at all. And so if you think about it, Jesus being from Nazareth, it's not really surprising that, that they would know this family in Cana. They probably would have farmed together um, and that they would be there attending the ceremony. Uh, Jesus' mother is there. Jesus brings along with him his disciples. You know, some people get a plus one, but I guess if you're the Messiah, you get a plus 12. And remember, some of Jesus' disciples... In the, in the story where it takes place, they'd only been following him for like three days. Nathaniel, for instance, had been called by Jesus only three days earlier to follow him. And actually, Nathaniel was actually from Cana. This was his hometown. So he surely knew the bride and groom also. Maybe he had his own invitation. But here they are, the greatest celebration of this couple's life. And you got you to remember, this is pre-nightclubs. This is pre-top golf, this is pre-movie theater, there's no other party in town, only this huge wedding that would have been it for the city of Cana. And I cannot overstress for you the distress in Mary's uh, words in verse 3, when she tells Jesus that they, they have no wine. And in the Jewish wedding feast, wine was essential, and not so that the guests could get plastered, but because it was a symbol of, 
of exhilaration and celebration. And, and according to, to Kent Hughes, wine was of such importance that a lawsuit could be instituted if no wine was provided. <laughs> imagine that. Imagine, can you imagine going to a wedding and thinking, there's no wine. Where's my lawyer? I mean, th- th- that's, that's crazy. But don't get caught up in the lawsuit thing. Uh, the real issue here is that mistakes were made. Maybe the host didn't count on such a large crowd. Or maybe someone just forgot to order enough wine. But whatever the cause, childhood dreams were about to be shattered. And shame was about to come upon these families. So yes, the drama in our text is real. Mary speaks to Jesus in desperation, and she says this, They have no wine. And Jesus responds to his mother in verse 4. He says this, Woman, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And and I don't want to get caught up in all this and spend a lot of time in it, but trust me, in the Aramaic, this was a respectful response from Jesus. In the English, I know it sounds like, woman, but in the Aramaic, it was, it was, you know, it was a res- respectful term for a woman, the way that Jesus approaches her. And he says to Mary, you know, my hour has not yet come. And in true motherly fashion, in verse 5, Mary looks at the servants who are working behind the scenes, the ones who are panicked because the wine is gone. And then she looks to Jesus, and then she tells the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you. Jesus says, hey, it's not my time. Mary says to the servants, do what he tells you. Sounds like something my wife would do. Let me just say this. Jesus, I mean, he's not manipulated. Okay, you just need to understand that. He's not. He has a timetable for his ministry. Jesus only listens to the commands of the Father. And and in this moment, he chooses to help her. I've always wondered, how much of the fullness of Jesus' glory did Mary really grasp? We, we know that she knows a lot. The angels have spoken to her a lot of, of, of the glory of Jesus. But, but you always wonder, to what fullness did, did Mary really understand it all? Does she, does she grasp the fullness that Jesus has been there since the beginning of time, that he, he had a role in all of creation? Because here's what I know. At the very least, Mary knows that Jesus can work miracles. Why else would she turn to him there? I've often wondered what, what Mary witnessed at, at home with Jesus. What miracles had Jesus done in private? Had, had Mary seen Jesus turn water into wine before? Irregardless, Mary knows that Jesus is the answer to the problem. Uh, this will become the first occasion for the first public miracle of Jesus and the first public sign that points directly to the divinity of Jesus. There were these large stone water jars. Uh, They were used for for ceremonial cleaning, like when you would come in and out of a a house or go to a party, and each one held about 20 to 30 gallons of water. And Jesus instructed those servants to to fill up those uh, ceremonial cleansing jars with water. Let me back up just a second. Uh, These ceremonial cleansing jars, they weren't just there for, for decorations, the guests had, had used them when they came in to clean their hands and their feet as they entered the party. So think about, uh, especially in the, in the time of, of, uh, of COVID-19, how dirty the water would have been in these cleaning plot, uh, pots. It, it frankly would have been filthy. And Jesus says to them in verse 8, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. 
I wonder, I wonder if those servants were nervous at all to take uh, this concoction from the local rabbi to be sampled by the master of the feast. I wonder what the disciples thought about this. They had, they had just started, some of them, just three days earlier following Jesus. And now, was he going to serve dirty water to the wedding guests? But nonetheless, these servants, they, they take the cup. They take it to the master of the feast. Uh, now, the master of the feast would have been, in, uh, in effect, a, a wedding planner. That's, that's what he would have been. He would have been the person in charge of, of making sure all the details of the party run smoothly. And here's the logic of this story, just so you understand it. Normally, at a wedding in this time, hosts would bring out the best wine first. Before the, you know, before the taste buds had, had been a, a little numbed, or, or so I hear. Uh, so you might start by serving everybody a, uh, a $30 bottle of wine. Uh, that probably makes me look cheap. Uh, that I, I think a $30 bottle of wine is the good stuff, and, and you're right, I am. Uh, I'm very cheap. Uh, but, but they bring whatever the good stuff is, whatever you would spend on an expensive bottle of wine. Uh, you know, they, they would bring that stuff out first. But after a couple of glasses of the good stuff, they would just bring out the Costco box wine. And, and if, you, if you got the timing just right, no one would be none the wiser. <laughs> in, our, in our story, the servants uh, bring the cup to the master of the feast, uh, the one that Jesus has just uh, told them to bring, and he expects to taste this Costco uh, box wine, but instead he tastes what I would have to guess is the greatest wine ever tasted in the history of the world. I mean, that's just a guess, but what would you think Jesus would make? I'm not a big uh, wine connoisseur myself. I think you call them sommeliers. I can't tell you about flavor profiles or about which wine tastes oaky. Uh, but it would have been the job of the master of the feast to know his wines. He, he, he would have known how to, how to taste them and what was good. And after tasting this wine, the master of the feast has to find the groom. He, he, he runs to the groom and he has to tell them how fantastic his wine is. And for you who are interested in keeping count at home, Jesus made six jars full, measuring 20 to 30 gallons each. That's 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's almost 1,000 bottles of wine. No one's running out of wine tonight or tomorrow or anytime soon. Let's read a little bit of this together, verses 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it, the water, knew. The master of the, of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. <laughs> this was the first miracle of Jesus that happens in, in the public, really. This was the first sign in what we consider the book of signs that we're going to be reading together. And as we discussed earlier, signs point to something. And so what does Jesus changing water into wine point to? Well, first off, it, it, as we talked about earlier, it points to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He has just done something miraculous. And it showed forth in his, in his glory. Look at, look at verse 11 with me, if you, if you can. This, uh, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. 
and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Think about it. Some of those had only been following him for three days. And and when they see what Jesus does, that he does these miraculous things, it produces in them faith that he is the Messiah. What about the other people there at the wedding? Who saw this? And what is the effect? It's an effect of faith. And this specific miracle, turning water into wine, points us all to to really a deeper reality. The truth is that, that you and I in a sense, we're nothing more than, than dirty water. And, uh, and Jesus came to transform us into fine wine. That's, that's what this sign is pointing to. It's pointing to the fact that Jesus does works of transformation. It points to the fact that all of us at one point in life are going to experience maybe a situation where, where it feels like the wine runs out. Now, I'm speaking metaphorically, of course. If you run out of physical wine, it's probably time for you to just sober up. It's, you're going to be just fine. You probably need to dry out a little bit. Uh, but, but wine in the Hebrew culture often represented joy. And some of us, we, we've lived these lives of great joy. We've always had what we needed. We've never lacked anything in this world. But for all of us, there will be a day in your life when the wine will run out. When you lose your job, when you, when you lose your spouse, uh, when you lose your health, when you lose your joy. And who do you turn to when the wine runs out? Mary knew. She, she bared him in her womb, and, and she knew Jesus was the creator and redeemer of all things. She knew that if anyone could create wine, it was Jesus. So I guess the question is, where are you right now? Are you running with a full tank? Are are you careless and bulletproof? Or are you a a bit like someone who has had the wine run out? I have to admit that it kind of feels like, in our world currently, like like maybe the wine has run out for a lot of us. We can't be together. Uh, People are dying. People are getting sick. Everyone's anxious. And we weren't prepared properly for this. Where do we turn to find joy again? Who could possibly turn all this dirty water into wine? You know the answer because the sign points right to him. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who makes all things new. He's the one who restores joy when it feels like the wine has run out. This is the sign that Jesus performs in John chapter 2 when he changes water into wine. And listen, I can't wait to to look at the other six signs together and to discover what they point to. Know this church, you were loved uh, both by your Lord and by your community and we will again be together and when we are, we will feast upon the Lord's Supper. It may feel today that the wine has, has run out, but Jesus will take this and he will do what he does. He will make all things new. He does this for his people. He finds us as dirty water. He makes us into a fine wine by his blood. Take comfort in the gospel, my friends. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we come together first to confess before you that we are sinners not deserving of your grace. We are dirty water. 
And in confessing this, we are, we are drawn to the praise and worship of Jesus, who by his signs and by his miracles and by his power and his authority, by his blood shed on the cross, transforms us into something new. We see the sign of water turn into wine point to that. It is our hope, God. We, we trust in it. We praise the name of Jesus. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. I mean, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Church, be encouraged. Uh, we have been the church gathered around our screens. We are still one. Let's go and be the church scattered. And as you do, take with you the love of God, the grace of Christ Jesus' the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit until we meet again. Amen.